0: Mother of the Lord, we are concluding our Bible study series on the evils of feminism. We've considered the history of the feministic movement and the waves, the three, four waves thereof within three opening sessions. We've considered uh, feminism's effect upon life itself in terms of birth control and of course abortion. We've considered its effect, feminism's effect, upon education in terms of how it's brainwashing many young minds nowadays in public education. And we've also considered feminism's effect, of course, in getting to the marriage altar safely in terms of the ungodly dating culture that's all around us and is also come to the Church of Jesus Christ. Today we'll be concluding and con- And finishing with uh, feminism's attack and influence upon the institution, God's institution of marriage. So feminism's attack and influence upon the institution of marriage. We know from our reading earlier in Ephesians 5 that marriage ought to be a picture of Christ and the church. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it. Verse 31-33, through 33, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Nothing can separate Christ from his church. Because he gave his holy life, did he not, for his church. He gave himself for it, says verse 25. Not only that, he is joined together with his church in mystical union. And shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. There is a unity, isn't there? There, there is an inseparable unity between Christ and his church. The church, as it were, is the apple of his eye. They can never be disjoined, and it can never be detached. As as it were, they are one, one mind, uh, serving the Lord, as it were. They are one in this mystical union by faith, and. Feminism really did not get the memo for this, did they? Feminism really wants to just detach itself away from marriage and the family. They want wives to separate themselves from their husbands and their children. They want children to be separated from their parents in terms of public education and the brainwashing of them and the dating culture. And of course, they want babies to be separated from their mothers in terms of even stopping them from coming into the world altogether. It is plain to me through this research and through this whole series that the feministic movement and system, which has become so ingrained within our culture today, is a demonic system. It's demonic. It is anti-marriage, it is anti-family, it is anti-life, and it is anti-Christian, and it is an anti-Christ, a demonic system, and we should treat it for what it is. We should stand up and have some resistance against it. And today's subject, really, upon marriage, and in particular feminism, Influence upon marriage and the talking specifically in terms of the Christian realm is a vast one, and so I've, I've, I don't really have time to speak of everything. And so I'll really be concentrating on three main areas where I think feminist feministic teaching and ideology has been most influential in terms of a Christian's marriage. Firstly, it has feminism has created a detachment. Mindset in many marriages today. A detachment mindset in many Christian marriages today. Secondly, feminism has confused the biblical roles that God has designed which are conducive for a Christian's Christian marriage and, and lesser. Thirdly, feminism has affected the witness that a Christian marriage ought to have of course, in an unbelieving culture, it's affected uh, a Christian marriage's witness to a, an unbelieving world. And so, firstly, feminism has created a detachment mindset in many marriages, even Christian marriages. For the past 50 or so years, radical feminists, second, third wave feminists, have in- increasingly declared war on. Biblical marriage, and marriage as a whole, especially biblical marriage, especially patriarchal marriage. And the following social trends testify to that very fact. Consider, since the 60s, mid-60s, there's, since really feminism really took hold of our culture, which we've been discussing, there has been a sharp fall in marriage rates now. In the West and in the UK, consider also, in that and exactly at the same time, there has been an equivalent rise in couples living together out of wedlock because of the dating culture and because of the, uh, the, the fences and the, 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 the that have been trampled all over by feminist thinking.
1: And consider also
0: that at the same time there has been a massive rise. In the age in which people get married nowadays, my mum and dad got married at 19 and 20 years old. And that was typical of their day. Uh, I mean, I used to work with a, a man, uh, he's in his 70s now, but he was telling me when he was in the 60s, well, when, and he was, he's not even a believer. And he was saying, well, in my day, uh, in, I think it was the 50s or something like that, maybe mid-50s, he was saying, well, even if you weren't a Christian, it was expected for you to marry young. It was a shame for you to uh, not to, to, to be with someone out of the wedlock. Uh, you would a young man was expected to save up, uh, to, to get ready to prepare for a wife. A wife was a woman was expected to marry. These these things were just the norm. You didn't even have to be a Christian then. They're just expected of you. And so there's been a massive rise, really, since that time in the the age in which people are getting married in the UK. The the average age in the UK now for marriage is the late 30s now, the late 30s. The impact of feminism, women's empowerment, and gender role ideology in a single generation has brought social collapse. It's been disastrous in our society, and really, I think the recent euphoria over the women's football winning in England, winning— I don't know if you know about this—but the women in England have recently won the European Championship. I don't know what it was, like the World Cup of the women's league, and the England won it, and it was on the radio for for uh, for, for days. And I was going to work recently. And I hear over and over and this is not just about the football, this is more than the football. Uh, we can do everything that men can do, and there's this continual push. And I think that's where England is, and the UK is. We are the leaders, really. The UK are the leaders, or amongst the leaders, of this feministic movement. And of course, with the explosion of the dating culture, we've seen the social, the same social trends, feministic. Uh, trends are coming into the Church of Jesus Christ today, and in terms of marriages, and they've been completely normalised now because we're so far down that road. And and well-meaning Christians, because we can all be deceived, have been so desensitised to these things because it's been so ingrained within our culture. What has it brought? What has this? feminizing of our culture and of our marriage's quarters. I would advocate advocate that there's brought and does create a detachment mindset, a detachment mindset in many Christian marriages today. Young women are being taught now from a very young age that they, they do not need to depend upon a man that they can be financially independent, they can be sexually independent, they can be career minded, they can be assertive and authoritative, and many other such things that don't need a man. They can do everything that a man can do. And similarly, young men are being taught uh, to be uncommitted, unserious, irresponsible, and, in essence, emasculated. And, late, and this breeds a Within many men, Eve was created. Was she not from man's rib? She was created close to his heart, uh, for for a man for her for her to be close to his heart and not to be detached, as as it were, from each other. And but feminism has created this ungodly detachment mindset, and this problem gets worse. Because when two Christians finally do get married, they bring this worldly, feministic baggage, essentially, with them, this detachment mindset. The dating culture, the universities, the work, and they bring it all together. All these things, the the feministic thing, they bring it all, this, this baggage with them, into their marriage, and it creates this detachment mindset. Well, you do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do. You spend time with your mates and I'll spend time with my friends. You watch the football and I'll watch them in the baking. Uh, and there's this, this attachment mindset. And it's, it's sad to say to many Christian marriages today, they it's like worldlings. This is what worldlings do. Gone are the days where families come together in the evening have dinner at the table, pray together, have family devotional time together, and seek the Lord's blessing for their life. They're dedicated to the Lord. There's not this detachment. Or you go to the gym and do your, do your stuff. I'm not saying that we can never do things apart, but then there should be this Unity, this joined together. We're, we're, we're giving up our selfishnesses now. I was single, but now we're together now. We're outward looking to serve the Lord with our lives now. I'm not my own island to live, and feminists have really taught us and put this pressure upon us. And it's so ungodly. 1 Peter 3 7 comes to mind. Ye husbands, dwell with them. That is your wives. According to knowledge. No wonder why we have seen an explosion within the marriage counselling movement. It has come at exactly the same time as all this kicked off, around about the mid-60s and the, uh, the late 60s. There was an explosion in marriage counselling. And guess what? It was a within the psychotherapy movement as well, which is ungodly which takes people away from the Scriptures. All these things have happened at the same time. And I, I can speak so much about this detachment mindset within marriage today, but I've got to move on now to our second consideration. And that is that feministic teaching has confused biblical roles that God has designed for our good and our blessing. Feminists have sought to overthrow an entire biblical headship system. And sadly, by and large, they have succeeded in the West. And I believe that God, God's judgment is right upon this nation, not just because of this, but, but many things. And most Christians have followed the culture in this respect. The emasculation of Western men. Really has not only weakened our marriages; men are no longer leading; they're no longer being responsible. And I'm not just talking about leading, providing. I'm talking about spiritual, emotionally, for their wives and for their families. And the emasculation of of Western men has not only weakened our marriages, but it's weakened our nation. We are talking, spending all this time talking about getting transgender people in the military getting women in the military pushing the, the, and pressurizing it while China and Russia and, and the enemies of the West are just laughing. Look at what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, just, it's a, just a matter of time, isn't it? Perhaps. And the words of the wise Solomon come to mind in Proverbs 14.34 Righteousness exalted a nation that sin is a reproach to any people. The undermining of marriage, undermining of the family, undermining of these biblical principles and and, and truths that are meant for our good, the undermining of all these things has seen social collapse. Dearly beloved, God's word is clear that there are distinctions between men and women in marriage. The roles not interchangeable. Those Christian men now in the West and in the UK no longer see it that it is their prime responsibility to provide for their households. And like I said, it's not just about physical, physically providing. It's about leading, spiritually speaking. They are the spiritual heads of their families, to, and for their wives, for their children. For 1 Timothy 5 8 says, if any, if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. It's not just talking about one's own immediate family. And you, you, you never want to put a man down. If a man does his best, that's all that can be asked of him. Um, but it's also talking about from a wider circle. We, we are to work, and men are to be diligent. In the physical realm of work and in the spiritual realm, because we want to provide for other people as well. In Genesis two fifteen, Adam was charged to dress and keep the garden of Eden. Man is charged by the sweat of his face to provide bread. Our feministic culture has made men, even Christian men, so irresponsible nowadays and lazy. Proverbs 18.9 comes to mind. He also that is slothful in his work is a brother to him, that is a great waster. Proverbs 22.29. Seest thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before me men. Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph, you know, when he was cast into that pet soul as a slave, as it. He could have been bitter and resentful son, that's it. But what did he do? He was diligent. When in Potiphar's uh, house and he was granted favor in the sight of the Lord. What about in prison? When Again, when he was accused, he was cast into prison. What happened? He paid favor. He was diligent. He was hardworking. He was committed. He could have just given up. Oh, I've had enough now. Oh, not this again. That kind of, this this attitude which you see is so prevalent in our culture. This emasculating attitude. And this self-pity has self in mind, doesn't it? don't see that with the patriarchs. Joseph diligently worked, didn't he? And he granted faith. And he stood before kings. He stood before Pharaoh. And he fed the known world at the time because of his diligence and his heart to the Lord in this respect. We need to get that spiritual backbone back, don't we? we need to, that's what we need to get back as men. And we think about Jacob and Laban. I mean he had to work a long time, didn't he, for his godly wife? And he had to went in a very short space of time, didn't there? <laughs> and uh, but he had to work. And he even said, it wasn't it in charge of the band? I was working day and night, my eyes sometimes didn't get, get in any sleep, I was looking after your sheep. And this work ethic uh, for men. And the Apostle Paul, he didn't need to work, did he, as a tent maker? And he did, didn't he? Friends, it's, it's not only good for a man to provide for his own, for his own family, physically, spiritually, family devotional time, all these things, but also to labor hard for righteous causes. When, our, when we read of uh, the missionaries of uh, uh, the Puritans and reformers, they accomplish great things that they're not for the Lord. They had far less than we have, but they accomplished greater things. I suppose it's because they, their faith was so much greater, wasn't it? That they just gave everything to the Lord. They were so much more diligent and hard-working. We need to get that back, don't we? And Ephesians 4.28 comes to mind in that regard. Let him that stole steal no more, because we can steal from the Lord. Energy, the health, work as a gift, isn't it? We can steal from the Lord what He gives us. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, work it with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to to have to give to him that needeth. You see, it's not just about my own family; it's an outward-looking thing. I want to be diligent in every aspect of life because I also want to build up the church of Jesus Christ. I also want to support the church of Jesus Christ. There's a higher cause, isn't there? And of course, we saw that with Joseph, didn't we? Where by the grace of God, he fed the known world at the time and the mighty hand of God. You know, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, I was quite frankly appalled at the work ethic of of men, men's attitude to work nowadays, and I spoke to many employers, and uh, one particular one almost lost us, lost us, whole entire workforce. They all wanted to go and be down the pub with their mates. They wanted to be put on a furlough down the pub. you had to sack them all. Literally, almost put his whole engineering company out of business. And, and it's sad to say that that same mentality, a lot of, I found with Christian men as well. That's a sad thing. I spoke to one Christian man, and for, for many, many, he said, I've been put on furlough now for months. And I got the option, to put on furlough for months and months and months. He said, It's great. I spent all this time with my, my family, and I thought, Okay, well, that's good. You can spend time with family. But don't you realize that work is a gift? Like health, it's a gift. If you're a Christian, it's a gift. You, you, we are to be diligent. We are to. We are to embrace work, to to, to do so heartily to the Lord. Whatever you put your hand to, do it heartily as unto the Lord. It shouldn't be seen as a bore and a dredge. We should should thank God that we have work to do. And we've got different things that motivate us now to work. Our families, righteous causes now. And it shocked me, the, the attitude that men, even Christian men, have to work. Feminists emasculating of men in that women are now becoming and, and now do want to become the main providers instead of men. And what that's leading to is if they become the main providers in that realm, they'll also want to be the, the main providers in other realms, spiritual realms. And that's what we're seeing, aren't we? Churches, vicars, women preachers, we're seeing a oh, literally a changing of our culture and it's all around us, these social trends in women, uh, in masses leaving the home for the workforce, has had a devastating impact upon our marriages and our families. It also has had a, a, an impact upon government policy. You think about it: the doubling of the workforce in a single generation. Seventy-five to eighty percent of women in the fifties were homemakers, homekeepers. They, edu- you know, the, the education, the education as Christians, we believe, should be a Christian education, and the things which we've spoken about. But the, this is now being outsourced, and of course, with feministic teaching, we've seen a, a massive shift. The restraints have been let go. The fences that God has put in place. As it were, to have children, to guide the home, all marriage, all these blessings, literally been taken out of the way, and the doubling of the workforce, and that has had a massive um, impact upon government policy in terms of marriage. That's why marriage is being undermined in our culture. It's being massively under, un, 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 undermined, and. Renaming marriage. Because we Christians are undermining it. We're just following what the feminists tell us. We're being feminized. You know, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote an article called Prodigal Homemaker. And I I it to um, an editor called The English Churchman. And the editor received it. And he... He said, and he was challenged by it, and he said, I'm going to publish it. And I said, well, what that he's going to publish it. And uh, a few months went by and it wasn't published. So I, I contacted him and he said, I'm going to publish it. <laughs> he said, just not at the moment. And it took him a year and a half or so to then publish. I got an email out of nowhere saying, I'm publishing it now. <laughs> Uh, because such is the sensitive nature, of course, to this subject. Um, but he, he published that. Um, the, pro- the prodigal homemaker, the homemaker is despised now in, in these days. Uh, it is seen as a prison, as it were, for many, and, and it shouldn't be the case, especially amongst Christians. Um, I'll happily send that article to anyone who will want to read it. It's called The Prodigal Homemaker. The tragedy of all this, dear friends, is that the feministic ideology has made its way into most Christian marriages today in terms of the roles being confused and biblical headship being despised. In what way, therefore, is it being despised? Men, even Christian men, are no longer leading by showing loving authority as Christ showed the church, as we read earlier. And Christian women are no longer seeing their need to submit to a loving husband's authority. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I would would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman, is the man... And the head, and the head of Christ is God. And so when we're talking about headship, we're talking about there's an order, a biblical order which is conducive to a Christian marriage. Um, So headship is about authority, isn't it, in marriage, a godly loving authority which has been undermined. How many heads do you have, brother? One head. How many heads do I have? It's, uh, I've got one head. How many heads does my wife have? She says, but one head. How many heads does my wife and I have in our marriage? we have got one head. One head. That's Christ. Me and my wife, when we were courting, promised each other, vowed to the Lord that, that the Lord, we would serve the Lord and His Word. Would, come, uh, would be first in everything in our hearts. We made that vow. doesn't matter how I feel or how you feel, the word of the Lord must have the final court of appeal. Not what the culture tells us, not what that other Christian tells us, which, is, which, which could be a very well-to-do Christian, a well-meaning Christian. The word of the Lord, that's what we will be governed by. So it's outward looking. It's to serve the Lord. It's not about me detaching myself and doing what I want and she's doing what they want. No, no, no. It's about serving the Lord, our family and the church of Jesus Christ. It's outward looking. It's not about my rights and about your rights. It's about serving the Lord. We're not some double-headed, double-minded, feministic creature with one mind in the church and and then a feministic mind in this area we have one mind in Christ serving the law I remember many years ago visiting an engineering company up north and I was to go around the, cap- the, the, the company's machines and look at their capabilities and help this engineering company that's effectively what I do and uh, this, com- this this the, 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 the director took me into the, into the room <laughs> And he said to me, you can "Go to all the machines, but don't go to that one." I said, "Well, why?" And he said, "Well, that that man that, that machine has someone called uh, Stella on it, and that person doesn't want to be spoken to or anything." I said, "Okay." And he said, "Stella is a fella." I said, "Ah, okay." And 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 in the same way, friends, Eve is not Steve. Eve is Eve. Eve is distinct from from Adam. But feminists will want you to, to think that Eve can do everything that Adam can do and should have all the same things as Adam can do and the same the other way around. And that is not the biblical way. Friends, because before we are all, all of us here, are susceptible to corrupting God's design and and in terms of the roles, But beloved, we have been redeemed, have we not? At great cost. And we must get a tight grip upon God's words and first principles. We must get back to first principles. Uh, If we do not get a a grip on this, friends, we're just going to be swept away with the tide of feminism. And so time does not really allow me to speak too much on this, I'm going to move on to our third and final consideration. And that is, thirdly, feminism's effect uh, that a witness that, sorry, sorry, and so thirdly, feminism has affected the witness that a Christian marriage ought to have. Thirdly, feminism has affected the witness that a Christian marriage ought to have in three ways. There could be uh, many more ways, but I'm just consider in three ways. Firstly, feminism has affected the primary aim that a Christian marriage ought to demonstrate. It ought to showcase to a faithless culture. And that, cause course, is oneness and unity, as it were. Christ to his church, a husband, as it were, to his wife. There ought to be unity, serving the Lord together as the heirs to the grace of God. They're not detached anymore. Matthew 19.6 says, Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. Wherefore, what, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Don't let feminist theology and uh, the new dictate to us how we are to live our lives. When two Christians marry the Lord, their life no longer belongs to them anymore. It, it, it belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? They've got to give up any ambitions, selfish ambitions, whatever it may have been. And they've got to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. It's about serving the Lord, isn't it? It's not about themselves anymore. God said in Genesis 2.18, It is not good that, a, that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Someone that's going to help him in the struggles, of, as it were, of, of life, to help and support him, to be the better half, as it were, uh, someone uh, that is perfectly suitable for him. And so the chief aim and duty of a Christian husband and, a, and, and wife is to work together as they care for their family, to support also the Church of Jesus Christ, And to build the church of Jesus Christ by by God's grace. That's their aim. And so this means that a powerful and beautiful godly marriage and witness is a relationship that is directed towards God first in everything. It's God-centered. It is outward-looking in which a Christian husband and a wife serves others. It's not about us anymore. We've got to serve Christ in our family. Every day. It's not about me being, going off and chilling out with my friends and this person doing that, going to the gym, whatever it is. It's outward looking. I'm serving the Lord now. It, I've been charged to serve the Lord, to help my wife, to support her emotionally, spiritually, physically. The same with my, my family. The same with the Church of Jesus Christ. And outwardly, it's a life service always dedicated to the Lord. Ecclesiastes 4 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, the two lie together obvious, is talking about marriage, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In a Christian marriage, there is a continual lifting up of one another. Why? To serve the Lord. To, To serve the Lord. This is the purpose why God gives us health and work and everything else. It's for His service. And so we lift each other up. We pray for each other. When a wife goes through difficult times, perhaps doubt or difficulties, or whatever it may be, we're there, lifting them up, supporting them, same with our children, same, that's the point. It's not about detaching oneself from the family, or from the marriage, saying, I'm going to do what I want, you just do what you want. That's Feminists teach. We must get a tight grip on this. Secondly, feminists, feminism has affected the witness that a Christian marriage ought to have by the undermining of Christian purity and chastity in marriage. Christian purity and chastity in marriage. A chaste mind before and after marriage strives for purity in every aspect of life. And that just cannot be said of feminists and the feminist movements. movement. Chastity is based on the inner desire of the heart to the Lord first. It has to be to the Lord first. Who you are to the Lord is who you are in secret to the Lord. That's where true spiritual character is developed. Not being found out by someone else being found out by the Lord. The Lord sees And so chastity is based on the inner desire of the heart to the Lord first. And it always must be done to the Lord first. All unbecoming, indecent, impure, immoral conduct therefore is recognized as sinful and evil and reflects a terrible witness upon one's marriage. Does it not? Especially a Christian marriage. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24. The outgoings of chastity in marriage ought to be witnessed in purity of speech. Not smutty language. Not a coarse, filthy joking. There must be a holy blush. A holy cringe when we are around people who speak in a coarse, filthy, joking way or smutty language. It must be a holy blush. I don't want to hear that. I'm not impressed by that. It also, of course, is impurity on the eyes, in guarding oneself against evil images and filthy influences, as it were. According to Titus 2, those aged men. And women have a great responsibility as well in this respect. Titus 2:2-5: that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. And the aged women, the aged women likewise, that they may be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. What are the elderly women uh, in the church of Jesus Christ? The good things which they are to teach, according to Titus. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. You see, if these things are not demonstrated and taught by aged men and women, they, they, they can cause the word of God to be blasphemed. When people come into the church and they see these things are not being upheld and not being taught, God's word, in essence, can be blasphemed. Thirdly, and lastly, feminism has affected the witness. That a Christian marriage ought to have by the loss of the virtue of modesty, of Christian modesty. Feminist strive for sexual liberation, financial independence, and to be everything that a man is has seriously under has seriously undermined modesty in marriage. Modesty is a biblical virtue that flows from a chaste lifestyle towards the Lord first. The words of 1 Peter 3, 1-5 through 5 come to mind. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of their wives. This is, of course, the context of uh, wives' Uh, who have unbelieving husbands, but the same principle applies. While they behold or chase conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. This flies in the face, doesn't it, of what our feminist culture wants women to be like. To dress, to impress, as it were. To dress, to impress. And that's the opposite of what a Christian woman wants um, and it serves this attitude addressed to impress serves as a terrible witness the profound ignorance which sadly many Christian marriages display in this regard is quite frankly shocking the standards in our day have dropped so so much that it's hardly even noticed if a godly wife is not in business. She does not need to appetize. And if she were, and I, I say that very respectfully, you shouldn't appetize even if you're not in business. But if she were seeking a godly spouse, that is someone seeking, a young lady, she should certainly would not want to use carnal means to do that. Use her body to do that. This is something, there is something very beautiful About a Christian lady who keeps her heart for for the Lord and for her husband. Unlike feminists, she does not want to have the limelight. She does not want to stand out, as it were. She doesn't want to draw attention to herself or her body. She saves her heart for her husband and the Lord. Her dress and her, her conduct does not have to be an assertive, self-confident, bold, authoritative, revealing and standoutish dress. It can be feminist. It can be feminine. It can be feminine and and modest. And we see that with our, our the new Prime Minister potentially. The culture, this assertive revealing this this type of thing. And it's being normalized now. And even within Christian marriages it's being normalized. And it shouldn't be that way. How a godly wife dresses and conducts herself reveals the inner beauty of the heart to an unbelieving, feminized culture. It really does. And while someone can be modest... We, 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 we want to also make sure to get the other extreme. While someone can be modest and be, have all these things, they also too can be very proud of all these things. Yes, that's true. But we should, we should never ever go to the one extreme without uh, talking about these things. So her dress and her conduct does not have to be assertive, authoritative, Revealing, stand outish, as it were. It can be feminine and modest. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the importance of modesty in his epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy 9 through 10. In like manner, also, that, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh Women professing godliness with good works. And so the, the idea here is that Christ has her heart. That in the inner man of Christ. She doesn't want to stand out. She doesn't need to show off, as, as it were. The Lord's got her heart. And her heart is to her husband. And time doesn't really allow me to go through the other virtues here. Let me just briefly name a few virtues which I've been underlined by... Feminists, such as chivalry, chivalry, a male-based uh, virtue that has respect and honor. That should have that that men should have a respect and honor for women, as it were, and show that uh, honor and respect for women, in treating them honorably and with benevolence and respectfully. And not to mention, of course, the virtue of fidelity, being faithful to God and faithful to one another. And so I realize it's quite late now. In conclusion to our study on the evils of feminism, we must understand that everything we need to know in terms of marriage, in terms of our family, in terms of relationship, all comes from the Word of God. And so we must get a tight grip upon this, or we'll just be swept away with the culture. And so in conclusion, let me just finish with the words of 2 Peter one two through three. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus and of Jesus our Lord according as his divine power, have given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue. Amen. Amen.